0: You're listening, listening to, to Vince Tracy, Tracy and uh, Matt King. It's Europe, Europe calling. A very good day. Welcome everybody. Our date is the seventh of December, twenty twenty-two. So near Denia, we have about 13 degrees. It's uh, a bit overcast. It's nice. It's, um, should we say, pleasant, actually. That's what I'm going to describe it as. Uh, let's go and find out whether it's exactly the same near Altea. So good morning to you, Matt. What's your weather like?
1: Good morning, Vince. Yes, you sound like you're having fun there. Well, 14 degrees here. Um, it's it says it feels like fourteen degrees. Well it's it's feels a bit warmer than that to me, but uh, I suppose I'm a bit warm blooded. But um it's 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 a very, very pleasant December day. So we're very lucky, very blessed. Yeah. And it looks like it's gonna stay a little bit cloudy. All day, but stay around the same temperature, so we're very lucky.
0: Yeah, well, funny enough, around about um, oof, midnight last night, um, I just pop outside, obviously saying goodnight to the cat, let him have his treat, and then uh, I come back in and I said to Anne, well, Definitely going a bit warmer. Well, anyway. Today, we're looking at the value of sport. Now, the reason why I wanted to do this one is obviously we have the World Cup going on. We have all sorts of uh, people with, um, you know, the different coloured uh, shirts on, the nationalities raised or as in Spain's case yesterday, lowered as the club went crashing out on penalties, which if you've got a team of professional footballers and not one of them can score a penalty uh, is amazing considering the way that Spain can pass the football round. But anyway, all that is part and parcel of what we're talking about. Um, so let's put lay down our credentials. Tell us about your sporting um, activities. What sort of things have you done in your sporting life?
1: Well, I, I go back a long time. I started, I managed to get my shoulders when I was between nine because, you know, I'm pretty broad. And um, I managed to get my shoulders from swimming. I used to swim butterfly in competitions yes. and for a club called Gorringe in uh, Wimbledon. Um, and it was one of those, uh, we were sort of put into a group and it was Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays. And bearing in mind, I was nine years old and it was swimming Length, lengths, 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 lengths. So actually, what it did for me as a nine-year-old is, by the time I got to eleven, twelve, I joined another club called Barracuda, which was in a slightly better league. Um, but I just got so bored and fed up with with uh, swimming length and uh, decided it wasn't for me. Although they tried so hard to get me to stay, I was doing reasonably well. But but nonetheless, I I left. So swimming was my first love, if you like. Yeah. Um, music's my last. No, there's a parody there somewhere. <laughs> but um, I, I then went on to, um, to throw the shot at school. I went to C- C- high school, got a uh, scholarship to Rutledge School, and I, got, um, I was lucky enough to have some really good teachers who put me in the athletics time. In summer was uh, shot put discus and uh, javelin. I wasn't so good, but hammer. And then also uh, in the winter season, of course, rugby. And we didn't play football at school. I mean, I, I, I very rarely ever watch any, even now, watch any round ball games. I'm not. I, I would watch the final of the World Cup because obviously it's the final. Uh, I'm sad that Spain lost, um, especially the way they did. I didn't see the game because I was travelling, but. Um, Anyway, that's another thing. But so then it was, uh, and I was lucky enough to be uh, at Crystal Palace with um, a guy called Otto. Otto, I think it was. Otto, I can't remember his surname, and he was Mike Capes and Jeff Winch's coach. And we actually had the Dewhurst Butchers. Do you remember? I Dewhurst, do. The Butchers. I do. Yeah. Well, they sponsored us, and it, it, sponsoring us meant that they gave us uh, meat and eggs. Every week, free meat and eggs. I mean, the big lads, uh, C and Winch, they used to have uh, like lorry loads of it, um, mm-hmm. and we used to get two. Um, it was it was worth something. Two two big carrier bags of of uh, meat and eggs every week, and of course, in those days, those uh, products in the in the seventies, the mid seventies, they weren't the same the same uh, warnings that you get these days. So we we were quite happy. And it was expensive still then, relatively speaking, but um, we were quite happy to get this sponsorship. So that was the summer. I didn't really realise I was any good at rugby, strangely, but I did get picked for um, county games uh, from school. Um, and then we played at... Uh, I went for the English schools rugby, uh, played against Wales, and I did had my first sort of major injury. I got crucified by... A guy that was about three years older than me, and he, he, uh, di- I had two discs prolapse in my spine, um, and that I got over that. But when when I went to uh, university, I continued playing rugby. Um, I'd given up the shot and discus. Uh, so I did it for fun, but not not seriously. You yeah. can't. I think the thing is, once you get to a sort of a level with any sport like your judo or or whatever, you have to concentrate on one thing. You can't diversify. And Whereas when you're younger, I, I would advise everybody to try everything, mm-hmm. everything they possibly can, even if it, it not, not if it really hurts their parents in the pocket or whatever, but if they, if they have to be traveled anywhere, my advice to anybody would be, to, as a youngster, try absolutely everything, because you just never know, like you did with judo, you never know until you actually have a go at it what it's going to be like and then from there I specialised in in rugby Um, I got a a game for Richmond uh, through my teacher at school called Pat Lavery at at university of course we played all the time and we were on British colleges um, and we had a great team it really was a fantastic team at St Mary's and we then ironically to a degree and it was a bit rare in those days bearing in mind we're talking about the 80s the early 80s we played Rugby Union on a f- Saturday, and then we'd put ourselves together after a, a reasonably heavy session in the, uh, in the bar on a Saturday evening, as one does with rugby, uh, to play rugby league, uh, in an amateur rugby league side, in, on the Sunday. And mm. we actually, I think, I'd, I wasn't part of the team, but we started it, and then after about three or four years, and I'd left, they won the amateur rugby league Um, competition throughout the country so they did really really well at St Mary's with that I think it's all gone now but um, yeah then London Scottish Uh, I was introduced to London Scottish and I played in the first team there for quite some time Um, toured all over the world absolutely opened my eyes to so so many things which sport often does yeah Um, you meet some amazing people who are well, compared to you, so talented. Um, I always found that, that that I was humbled by most of the people that I met, and I suppose I never really considered myself to be that that good. But, funnily enough, I, in England, I I met up with um, a couple of my old teammates, who's who's who actually said to me, "My goodness, we relied on you so much as a as, as a, a stalwart in the front row of the team. We 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 couldn't have done without you." And that that is literally, I haven't seen those guys for 40, 45 years, Mm. 45 years. (laughs) And their memories were fantastic because, of course, I have lost my memory through this stroke I've had. Um, And to hear all that was just fantastic, just fantastic. Not as an ego boost, but just even the memories, to have the memories back. So yeah, I've played. I've played my fair share of sports, and I've had a go at a thing called fives. I don't know. Do you know fives?
0: Yes, uh, something to do with uh, with a the, the racket, isn't it?
1: No, it's actually a leather glove that you wear on your hand, on one hand only, you're, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, and you play with a little ball yeah. that is just about the size of a squash ball, maybe a little bit bigger, and it is a solid core with a leather outside so it is very very hard and you hit this ball much like squash yeah around the around the court smaller court than squash um it's stonewalled so it's uh, in in my school it was blooming freezing cold um (laughs) and it took well it took probably 10 minutes for the ball to actually warm up so it bounced by hitting it hard so you'd sit in there and you'd bang it and bang it and bang it and bang it and the ball did warm up but your fingers afterwards used to be like like cucumbers yeah it was it hurt but why it was a great game i don't know but it really was a good game and i was lucky enough to play i am going on now but i was lucky enough to play um real tennis at hampton court
0: wow that's good
1: um i i knew the people from squash and also at the time i was doing some work for a pub chain uh, my company was and uh, they invited me down to play um, real tennis. And I became a member of the real tennis club in Hampton Court for about five years, six years, um, and played with the world champions. And it's, it's, that is an incredible game. Yeah. Tactical. Um, it's not like tennis. You have zones in the, in the court. You have a roof. In the
0: court, uh, it, 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 you, your listeners would need to look it up. But real tennis is a fantastic game. No, um, funny enough, when I uh, said racket, I knew it was some sort, of <coughs> some sort of game, a bit like squash, but yeah, uh, but I, I've never played it. And uh, real tennis, I've never played, but I do have an awareness of it because, um, oh, blimey, a long time ago when I was studying sport, uh, those sports came up. Let me give you two things. One. Um, I've got a nice interview I did with Jeff Capes on the website, which I must look out for you.
1: Come on, Jeff, yeah. He's
0: a very, very nice man, and uh, a lovely interview. So Yeah, I'll find that. We used to call him Budgie. Yeah, Uh, policeman, of course, and, um, you know, lots of good things to talk about, so that's one thing. Then I'll give you a quick potted history of things I've done, then we can start looking at the value of sports. So, um, I I come from a different era, really, so... There weren't really any swimming baths. Um, You told me you were 23. Well, you know, I'll tell anybody anything. You know me. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't swim till I was 21. And it was only by going to be a DJ at Clatterbridge Hospital and then seeing the nurses had a their own swimming pool that's where i learned to swim um, uh,
1: you need to say no more vince okay you followed the nurses down to the swim <laughs> i know yes very good
0: um it, it, at primary school football that, that was just about all we had we even played with uh, a case stuffed with rags so wow. I'm, I'm talking about pre-plastic footballs <laughs> people don't realize just you know the proximity in the time tunnel of some of the things that we don't now take for granted but should always look back um, so uh, when I went to the grammar school on a scholarship I suddenly was confronted with rugby which I wasn't good at so I didn't understand obviously so I became a cross country runner at school um, I was not bad at, at athletics And then, as soon as I left school at 16, I went back to play football, and I trialled for Trammy Rovers, and I represented Liverpool in the Shipping League, um, which, you know, is quite a good, well, very good standard, really. Um, Then, when I was 21, I went back to my rugby, just via a letter that came asking, would any old boys like to play? Um, And I enjoyed my rugby immensely, and um, then, when I went uh, to do my degree, we did what was called this community sports leaders course, so that vi- virtually played all sports, and then you learn the skills to teach th- those sports as well. So um, that's a quick potted history of my background. Of course, my judo we, we did mention. I was very fortunate to meet the right people. Uh, instead of going off the rails, these. People were wonderful. They gave me a way of life, and judo is the gentle way. So that stayed with me all through my life. Um, you can obviously apply techniques when you need to, but really the whole point is try and get on with people. I think it's it's a nice, the gentle way. Now,
1: yeah, I, I think you're, uh, you know, I'm sure you're going to come on to this, but, you know, sport, whatever sport you choose to do, sport is... Uh, an incredible learning uh, a road to learn on um, for many many reasons but uh, I I think the people that I know played sport at any level and with any sort of competitiveness in it have learnt respect I think that's that's one of the things that you actually have to have when you play a sport
0: Yeah I I think you're right and uh, there's aspects now uh, of both pros and cons so we'll start off by looking at health benefits, because you've already itemised um, that you know there's danger to people's health as well, um, there are obviously other pros which can be like uh, in a judo sense. For example, we used to spend ten minutes uh, just on flexibility every warm-up session and every cooling-down session, um, and yet I did. I come from a time when you didn't really even train to play football and you didn't really train to play rugby at one time um I no, mean, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, I, a, a little story on that and it's to do with football um a friend well, at the same uh, one of my peers at college um i i won't remember his name he was a a good friend of mine and he actually worked for me afterwards for a little while but he went and he became um the trainer for Crystal Palace. Now, I'm talking about back in the early 80s, it would have been. He became a trainer for Crystal Palace and he had to go to the board or to whoever operates the, 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 the club, which I don't know. And but it was the first team he was training and get them to insist that the, the, the guys turned up for his gym training sessions because they weren't doing it. Yeah. Now that's the early eighties, so that's only forty years ago. Yes. They were not training. And then he said to me, "But there's lots of first first division football clubs that do that at this particular time. They didn't have to train. They didn't have to do. They went out and they played football. They went out and headed the ball. I don't know what they do. In I suppose the same as us, really. You have set positions and you do set moves so they yeah. did that. But no training. Whereas we. When I was at at university, we used to do an incredible run twice a week, which was down from where I was at Strawberry Hill, down to Teddington Lock, over the lock, up Richmond Hill, which was a killer for me because I was Mm. a heavy (laughs) so-and-so, down the other side, over Richmond Bridge, up to uh, the A316, along the A316. It's funny, I remember this and then um, pass three roundabouts in 316, and then head off towards Teddington and back to college. It was about 10 miles. And we did that twice a week. Yeah. Not trained with rugby. That was rugby training, but that's what we did.
0: Well, it's interesting what you're saying, because I used to always go out. As a cross-country runner, I had no qualms about going out and running in the streets uh, to keep myself fit. And you would have people shout at you they would shout out sort of not not really obs- obscenities but because people didn't do what they can do nowadays it was totally out of character you know, yeah. to see somebody with their running kit running in the street uh, was really something a lot of people uh, found well, rather when,
1: if you don't mind me asking when was that What year would that have been well, what years would that have uh, been let
0: me see 40 do, 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 do. It'd be about 58
1: yeah, that was really that was really early. I mean, we're no, not say which... I'm not being rude, but you know, that is I was
0: born that year. (laughs) Well, talking about these things, you see, the the society was so different that even people uh, were encouraged not or certainly weren't encouraged to hold hands in the streets. You know, we're talking about so many different things um, that really have affected and changed everybody's lives that um, if we look at just a health benefit... Nobody. When I run, I ran the first World Marathon in 1982. Nobody gave us any advice about footwear. Nothing was ever told. I lost both my toenails, my big toenails, after doing that. Uh, marathon and I had fallen archers, and I couldn't play football for the next three or four years or rugby or anything um, because of the way that unfortunately uh, I trained every day to get up to speed up to about 26 miles and then run the marathon and then lost my toenails and had, had my fallen archers. So, you know, these. Uh, are the prices that you pay for not being encouraged to think in the right way or but train te- properly. Te-
1: yeah, I agree. The technology, though, wasn't there. But I was lucky that in Teddington, there was a Chris Brasher shop. Oh, right. Um, and I, I ran the f- the first London Marathon that there was. There weren't that, that many people compared to what there are na- now. Yeah. Um, I trained literally for a year for it. I did all the training that Chris Brasher had Written about and put on, um, and I, I followed it. But but being eighteen stone, playing uh, that sort right. of you're not you're not a, meant to be a runner. No, um, not that type of distance runner. But I had all the similar same things as you. My feet used to, my ankles in the morning looked like balloons. Yes. But I had to put on. I did a training. I actually I went to cycling in the end because my feet were so. Uncomfortable, Uh, and I used to cycle to to Bushy Park and back. It was four miles, but sprint cycle in order, and that was at seven o'clock in the morning, um, because I wanted to keep my training levels up. But running at one point did become so painful, and there there wasn't the technology in the shoes. You are absolutely right. Mm. You uh, we but even on that marathon, I watched people running in in. um, Do you remember the green flash tennis shoes?
0: Yes. Yes, I do. Well, they,
1: they were running in green flash tennis shoes, yes. a marathon. Well, they're not, they're not, we know now, they're not designed to do anything like that and, and never were. But mm. um, technology has not only advanced in terms of performances, but also in terms of health.
0: Well, you're so right, because my first degree was, uh, it was called, uh, it was a BA and it was Recreation and the Community. And so we studied things like the development of technology. In fact, part of the course was that you either went to one side, which was technology based, or the other side, which was sport and sport leadership and teaching uh, of sport type uh, of input. So, um, you know, I had a friend that I used to uh, go to college up in Plymouth with. And in actual fact, where you were talking about Chris Brasher, who ran with um, the first people that ran the first four minute mile roger bannister um you know then obviously you know people don't really think they find it very difficult to conceptualize the differences in what was um what were facts to what people's opinions were and we're talking absolute fact here because both of us came a cropper because nobody was giving us the right uh, information because it wasn't available to people. Um, you know, the, the the shoes that I ran in would have been ordinary pumps, I think we used to call them, or yeah, plimsolls. They would have been.
1: They wouldn't mm. have been any supports in the... They would, I mean, nowadays, you go to a running shop and you ask for, OK, you pay a, a substantial amount of money for a pair of running shoes, but they fit you absolutely perfectly and it and it's i mean it's hard i can't run now I, I i wish i could it would be a way of keeping my weight down but my breathing won't allow me to but uh, the running was i was probably the fittest when i was running um and we were running hard not like they suggest nowadays and, but then again they say don't jog if you're going to if you're going to do exercise do not jog and logically. As, as a physicist and as a, as a sports person, it makes sense because you're pulling all your weight load, your download, through your hips, through your knees and into your th- ankles and your feet. Yeah. You are bound to, to struggle, whereas if you're striding out and you're actually running, you're, you're, it's a much easier, more fluid movement.
0: Mm. I don't know whether this was an antidote, but it possibly could have been. Uh, alongside my training for this marathon, uh, I was raising money for cancer research, by the way, which was a great cause uh, for me personally with people in the family. I, I felt I was um, putting something back into society. And the, the thing that I think was a bit of an antidote was on my judo sessions, we used to always spend certainly between 10 and 15 minutes every night we practiced and i used to practice every night of the week um and you know you you would work on the flexibility rotation of the ankles uh you do certain exercises which the japanese were teaching which we weren't learning here in britain in fact again just adding a little input uh, a lot of people won't remember that judo was outlawed like karate, of course, but judo certainly was not allowed uh, at a certain time. I think it was just after the war, and it was only probably about 1960 that they actually allowed people to teach judo in our country. So, again, yeah. you know, uh, we're looking at all sorts of things apart from just the health benefits, we're looking at uh, little bits, little aspects of history as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, definitely, I think I think we lived,
1: I mean, I'm not, I think we've gone over the other side now, the point has moved over from the middle, but before we were definitely ignorant of a lot of things, because the technology wasn't there. Yes. Now, I think what's happened is the technologies, a few years ago, the technology was there, and we listened to it a little bit, and now it's gone another way where people have actually, uh, deciding what the good good part of the technology is for you. And loads of people have various different ideas of what and how you should do it. So anybody coming through now, it would depend on your coach, your particular coach, of, of uh, what you and how you do things.
0: Yeah, well, you see, we were when we were practicing judo, we were practicing in blind faith. Uh, yeah. all the Japanese used to win everything, until I'm um, just uh, struggling to remember a name, but there was a judo coach from Britain who went to Japan came back and broke down all the techniques and then started to input at the time that we had people like, um, or oh, uh, the name will come back to me, uh, but the, we had our first major judo successes um, in the Olympics and, you know, people like Brian Jacks and Neil Adams were the people I was yeah, thinking yeah, of. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, again, I would just... I stumbled into this. I remember a friend calling round to our house saying, come along and look at this man in funny sort of white pyjamas, teaching everybody um, how to fall. And, you know, <laughs> we all went along for a laugh. Um, well, it, it did become... I mean, I did judo very briefly.
1: Uh, again, it was in my sort of exploratory years, around between 10 and ten and 12, I suppose it was. Um, it was... It was, it was a good sport. I enjoyed it. It was a very, very seriously taken sport at the time for us. But it was new, and I think that's what the, uh, the, the that's what the uh, the whole joy of the whole thing was really. Yeah, it was new.
0: Well, I liked the I like the learning of the the language, and then of course, uh, when a little bit of success came, and I went to uh, represent Birkenhead in Paris. Um, twice I did that, so you know it got me a little bit uh, of travel. <laughs> then I started to develop my love of France, and then you see other parts of your education slipping in. Um, but let me stick with one word now which uh, authority that's a little bit that came through judo very quickly. Our teacher, the sensei, uh, the, the, his authority was that whatever he said. Nobody argued against a because not many people had the knowledge, so we couldn't argue because we didn't have enough. <laughs> we didn't have enough knowledge, nor did we know the techniques. Because um, when I started, there were people um, tr- they were practicing on coconut mats and reading the techniques from a picture in a book. That's how primitive it all was. And um, it was just that a teacher had gone to Japan and come back, had been given a green belt, and he suddenly was the uh, the head of sort of what we were doing, if you like. But the big thing is he was the authority. And if we look at, say, what happens in the World Cup even now with the football and the rugby previously, uh, it's this business of somebody having the power to, to say you, you can stay on because you're playing the game fairly, or you go off because, quite honestly, you're a cheat. You're somebody that's not keeping the rules, or you've done something that transgresses uh, normal fair play. So it's this concept of authority matter. I want to look at next because I think this is a very, very um, difficult thing within sport for a lot of people, especially. When we look at the uh, truculence and uh, the way that the footballers are behaving, uh, even at the top level on uh, the world stage, I find some of uh, the histrionics and the play <laughs> well, acting. I'll, I'll
1: be honest with you, Vince. Truthfully, there's two th- two reasons why I will not watch football. One of them is the absurd amount of money that they're played that yeah. they're paid, sorry, for playing. The, not all, not everybody, I realise that, I do that. But, you know, the, some of the wages of the players are disgusting. And uh, that's the only word I can, that's my opinion, and I'm probably, there would be a, hundreds of thousands of people saying, no, oh, but they're worth every penny. <laughs> no. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> but the second, the second thing is that I cannot stand the truculent behaviour the, the the players at every level, uh, how they behave to their referees. I used I used to fish. Uh, another thing I used to do for competitions. Again, not everybody's cup of tea, but quite often we would be on a canal on a Sunday. Um, if I wasn't doing something else, uh, I would go to these competitions. But there's there's quite a lot of money involved with it, to be perfectly honest. So it was worth going if you got first or second place, but. Um, you'd sit next to a football field or a, an area with football fields on it and i watched kids the kids games used to be the fathers on the sideline the language was yeah. disgusting yeah absolutely disgusting so therefore one must um say that if that's happening when they're youngsters then it's going to then it's going to emanate forward into when they grow older but if the adults were playing, the, the, the adults and um, how they talked to the referees was disgusting. I mean, really, in, in rugby, if you'd have, you couldn't even say, unless you were the captain or vice captain, excuse me, sir, could you tell me what that penalty was given for? Mm. Because it was none of your business. You weren't expected to do it to, to relate to anything. It was your captain or your vice captain that did it, and you were given ten yards penalty. So you didn't do it. You yeah. knew that was what was going to happen, and that's what the case. The 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 atrocities that I see going on on the football field nowadays, you know, even in the odd World Cup games that I've seen, and these are World Cup games where millions and millions of people are watching it. I, I'm appalled. No, I, I look, am honestly appalled. I'm these t- are grown men. And in countless amounts of money whatever they in whatever
0: well it's totally uh, they're in you you're totally right and uh, round about the year 2000 when I started working uh, full-time with Ondo here in Spain, I used to tell people at that time that there's more to this money than actually meets the eye. Now, uh, Kylian Mbappé at the moment, the French player, earns 1.6 million euros per week and Uh, There are obviously other examples uh, like Haaland in Britain, um, 867,000. Mo Salah for Liverpool, about 365,000 or something like that. The point for me is I think this is a very, very subtle way of trying to defeat the work ethic. That's what I think is going on. I think if you get all the young people all dreaming of becoming a star footballer, earning those stupid amounts of money, lottery wins every time they turn up at the ground, uh, plus then they've not got the education to assimilate a way of life in many cases, so they fall by the wayside and have all sorts of problems. So there's that. I totally agree with your comments about uh, the parents because I can remember going to watch one of my boys playing football. There was a man at the side shouting to his kid, "Break his legs!" And I said to this guy,
1: "Oh, absolutely, Vince, absolutely, absolutely." Well, I said horrendous. to this,
0: I said to this guy, I said, "Do you really realise what you've just said?" And he looked at me and uh, sort of gave me that sort of look that tells me that if I keep talking to him, we'll have a punch up. So I dropped the subject. I was on supply teaching. I went into a school about two weeks after that. And there he was. He was a teacher. And I can't oh believe me. that that is the, the type of money uh, that, uh, f- that people earn was the first point. And the second, the type of people that are involved in this business of, you know, trying to assimilate skill and discipline and uh, the sorts of things that we've been talking about. Um, so, yes, I'm totally with you. I love the game. But I hate the behaviour and I think there's an underlying danger that what is going on is th- there's a constant attack in Britain at the moment. I won't go into it now because, quite frankly, I just will mention that it's part of it. And I think if if they can get all the kids dreaming of becoming footballers rather than doing honest work and being honest paid for it... um. Okay, let me go next to a side of football which uh, I think you alluded to, cheating. This is something which has become prevalent in the game whenever you watch people are cheating. But the outcome of something that happened during this week showed me there is far more and far greater sinister implications as well. A ball crossed the line in the game between Spain and Japan. The world saw that it crossed the line. And yet the authorities tried to convince everybody that via VAR it hadn't crossed the line. I'm sorry. I saw a photograph with space between the ball and the line. And there's definitely evidence to contradict what they said. Uh, Now... That immediately lends me to think, why would they do it? Well, because there's rigging of everything. Qatar shouldn't have been chosen. But now we're coming into the politics. So let me just get you to give me your thoughts on cheats and cheating, please.
1: Well, as you're, you're, I I shouldn't be really, but as you're you're recounting that story, and I do remember seeing, I don't know whether it was the game or that particular incident replayed and replayed and replayed over, where the ball in my opinion, crossed the line as well. Um, although I'm, it doesn't have to be grounded the other side of the line, does it? It just has to cross that opening line in yeah. football. Yeah. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, people have said or commentated that it was the camera angle. I mean, the camera angles that I've seen definitely make it made it go over the line. Yeah. But, but, but the trouble is... Like you say, there's a manipulation there. There's, there's, the the, it almost makes me think that the outcome is already on the cards for whoever's going to win or whoever's, uh, whoever's, uh, you know, going up there for the finals or the quarterfinals or whatever it is. Something and and that in itself makes me not want to watch it. I'm a little. um... It's full of. I don't know why I think this, and I I, I have never been involved with cheating. I, I, I can put my hand on my heart. I, I've done a few unscrupulous things in within my position at rugby in order to gain a penalty or to do something within. I, I couldn't say that I haven't done that um, for the benefit of the team or whatever. But that's sort of, but nothing like when a, a, an administrator or a referee th- does something so awful? And also, what's the point of this VAR? What is the point? If you don't actually take any notice of it, what is the point?
0: Well, you see, I, I, used, to be a, I used to be very much um, in favour of bringing in technology, But when you've got technology that doesn't have any common sense, because obviously (laughs) artificial intelligence can't have common sense, uh, then you get the options to try and use the technology to cheat for whatever reasons you might feel are appropriate. Um, So I think rather than get too concerned about um, technology, because we will eventually talk about it um, but not in this particular podcast because I want to look at the the values of sport now for me you see if everybody in the world sees the ball is out apart from a machine and then the uh, panel of VAR people are uh, allegedly judging it and if you look to rugby rugby league and rugby union you hear the messages being sent between the field of play and the referee, and oh, the absolutely, VAR, absolutely. You know it's, they, they it's they'll clean, explain. Yeah, and yet football doesn't do this. And there's only one reason for me: it's either to cheat or it's to affect betting. Something is going on, and at the moment they can't really uh, get to the bottom of that. So cheating for me is one of these things where, uh, you you know, I think to cheat is probably one of the worst aspects of people in sport. Um, I'd rather lose and lose after having a a good performance, doing my best and knowing that the other person and the other side have done the same. I think to actually be cheated from a game, and we've seen this time in and time out, does tend to make me think that the reason might be that it gets people cross. It gets people agitated. It gets people so that they don't really like what they're seeing. And maybe I think there's a seed change in football because I feel that what uh, we're going through at the moment, I think it's a manipulation of the Americans trying to take over the the uh, British Premier League. You can see they've got 10 clubs already. Um, again, this is for another podcast, but I'm, what I'm saying really is that the use of sport to manipulate millions of people is now so easy using television and technology. Let's have your thoughts you on see, that one.
1: Well, you see, when you say... I, you you have to really say football in a way, in a sense, because there are no, there's no greater sport uh, viewers than football yeah. on TV, and TV is obviously the vehicle that the the perpetrators of any manipulation will use, because it is the most popular. Now, that's, a, that's a That's a That's a given. Okay. But you know the th- the sad thing is talk, when this is ch- going talking of cheating. I have a had a really good connection with, a, a, a. it was a friend we trained together, a guy called Mark Tout. I don't know if you remember Mark?
0: No, I'm afraid I don't.
1: Right. He was a decathlete, and he was, uh, he changed from being a decathlete to being a, uh, it's all been written in the papers, this, it's nothing, I'm not telling tales or anything. It's, okay. It's, uh, it's been, he's in, been interviewed and he's, he's come clean, but... He, he, I don't know the exact full story and the ins and outs, but basically the outline was he went from being a decathlete to being a, um, a bobsleigh uh, guy, driver. Right. And he was caught for senazanol, which is a banned substance, um, and he uh, got done just because he took the, the blooming thing at the wrong time. Now, he quite candidly has told me that in every, every department of every sport that he knows of, athletics, football, everywhere, drugs are being used. But the bigger problem are the drugs that mask the drugs. Right. So they don't only just take the drug to enhance whatever performance they're doing or what they're training for, but there is another drug that will hide the, the drug that they... That I, was, I was lucky enough to be on the milk race. I, I was one of the ten um, bouncers, being such a small man, um, <laughs> on, on the, uh, the milk race in England. Uh, I knew the guy that used to run it. And um, it, at the end of the, each of the stages, and I'm pretty sure this is the same for all of the races... At the end of the stages, you go and collect, you're told to collect one, two, and three. And they have to then go into a cabin that is, is, is under security, it's got guards on it. They go into a cabin until they pee. And they have to produce a sample that then is tested at that time. Some of them can be in there for hours because because of the effort and because of the 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 the, the, um, the endurance of the stage or, or whatever, they can't pee straight away. But that is tested, everybody. But it's still because the soigners, the the people that look after them, that massage them and look after them, try to get to them before they come over the line or as they come over the line with a quick syringe, stick it in their thigh, and and it's a. Uh, it's a, a job done to hide whatever they've been taking
0: well it,
1: it's really 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 devious and but i think it happens in every sport now i don't believe that there's anywhere is free and we're not talking recreational drugs we're talking about performance enhancing drugs
0: well i think the the problem is uh, look I don't take drugs. I've never taken (laughs) despite being in the clubs as a DJ and all this sort of stuff. Apart from, um, you know, drinking a bit too much alcohol when I was younger, uh, I've never, never, ever been involved in drugs. And um, basically, I find that side of all games and sports very difficult because the trouble is if you don't take it yourself – Instead of people saying, "Well, you know, that's that's good that you know," I, I'm I'm pleased that you don't. They don't seem to do that. They seem to regard you as a goody goody. Whereas I don't think it's a goody goody. I just think it's a, a normal thing. You don't take drugs. Um, you know, if I if I have the world's worst headache, I might take a headache pill. But I don't normally want to take even a, a tablet. Um, well, be-
1: I I have to I have to take tablets now uh, for for pain and for for various different. Thing, uh, problems that I have, but they they do actually work. The ones I take and they stop me from having pain and they stop me from uh, help my breathing and they help. But they're, dr- they're drugs. They're just the same as uh, drugs. But I, I was offered drugs in sport. I've never ever succumbed or take taken them. In fact, I've had big arguments with my family, you know, the, the youngsters in my family, about. Smoking weed or dope, and it's all right. There's nothing wrong with it, and whatever. But because I am so stalwart on on uh, that, you know, I worked in a drug abuse clinic. It's going slightly off the thing from sport. I think I told you before in another podcast. But I watched people when I was young come in for two or three weeks into this clinic. We were supposed to help them, counsel them uh, from a Christian aspect of view. They'd give them a meal, give them a bed. Within a few weeks, they were dead, because at that time, back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was nowhere for them to go. The streets were all there was, and there was very few drugs apart from heroin acid. It wasn't, there wasn't the the, the designer drugs that there are now. And they overdosed. They had nowhere else to go. Their veins had all shriveled. They, they, They died. Okay. And that was, that was it.
0: I flagged that up for another podcast because I did remember that we were going to do it so possibly for next week. Um yep. I'm going to go for another sort of aspect of sport which is not really, well sorry not really it isn't good. It's this idea of the pedophiles that have got into sport and used their positions within clubs and training camps, etc. I'm thinking of football again, as you can probably well imagine, because we've had outbreaks of this every now and again. Um, I just feel that there is a slight area which doesn't get discussed very often, which is basically... um, I remember as a teacher walking in on a session uh, where the uh, young people who were at a camp... We're doing initiation ceremonies, which, of course, right. is really, it's all about bullying. Um, and yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, a, well, bullying or control.
0: Yeah, and then, of course, the thing that really is then uh, got quite uh, worrying was the there was some area where um, I got information regarding young people going to a football club and It almost seemed to me like they were using these initiation games to soften up and find out who was the likely one that the trainer can come in and do what these trainers have done in the past. Because um, this is an aspect of sport, not just sport, but sport is used.
1: It's life, really, Vince. I think you can even broaden it as far as that.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's
1: a vehicle for them to use, yeah.
0: So, really... Uh, It's that business of how do you trust the coach? How far do you allow the coach to... Um, get involved in the growing up process of a young person. I'm thinking again of the likes of the young um, gymnasts who are bent and cajoled into, um, you know, changing the body to allow them to stretch even further than probably they should do. Uh, That's an area which I think Um, two areas though, which I think really need a little bit of discussion which is really the opportunist that can get into sport and then use his or her position uh, to practice their paedophilia or whatever else that they're involved with these are very worrying I
1: think that's sort of there's definitely two areas there aren't there I mean my at university I had a guy called Bill McLaughlin who was the British, the the women's British European, uh, British uh, coach for gymnastics. He was the man. He was the oracle. Now he he got me the size I was to do Arab and backflips, uh, just incredible um, uh, back somersaults. He got me to, off the floor, off the floor. He inspired confidence in such a way. Now he was the the women's women 's coach the british coach and i I never would have uh, never would have said he 'd have been any anything other than completely one hundred percent effort for the girls doing the work he wasn't, he wasn 't interested in anything else he just wanted to do it so that 's my sort of experience on the gymnastics side on the other, on the other hand I know Again, from from personal experience, I seem to have got all these bloody experiences, and I I, I just you're (laughs) you're bringing back my memories. Yes. Again, flash that just as a flash. But when I was doing my cycling proficiency, you remember that you used to get your cycling proficiency badge. Yes, I do. Um, Schools uh, gave you this opportunity to do your cycling proficiency in a way I couldn't do that week. But I went to a youth club in Chelsea. And there was, it was quite happily to say it was a paedophile ran it. Mm-hmm. And he tried to get me to do a course on his own with him at his house. But there was something wrong. You know, I was old enough to know that that wasn't what he did. And actually, my mum and dad said to me, you're not doing that and you're not going there with him. They obviously knew that something wasn't quite right. And it turned out he was arrested and prosecuted and imprisoned for paedophilia. We had another guy that was a Latin, it sounds like I've got know them all, but there was a, a Latin teacher at school who was exactly the same. In, in the old days, of course, you had the baths, didn't you, after rugby?
0: Yes, of course. Um,
1: and this guy was a Latin teacher. I won't, won't say his name, but um, he used to invite odd boys into his private bath oh. after rugby. And because they were teachers, they had the the, the power of teacher uh, coming before their name, guys used to go. And guys were fiddled with and guys were assaulted. Young boys were assaulted for a long time. I know four years, yeah? But eventually he was got rid of. But it is... It's, it, it, it's one of those things that just is everywhere. You never know. You really never know.
0: Okay, look, I can see other podcasts that we're going to have to discuss lots of things because we're down to about eight
1: fifty, About 50, about
0: <laughs> in there, there. Yeah, we're down to the last eight minutes. Look, I wanted to quickly um, look at this business of racism within sport. Because I think I'm probably right in saying that at all levels that we've worked at, and certainly as both uh, qualified teachers, uh, we wouldn't ever embrace anything that was racist within the groups of children and young people that we've both been with. Now, when you look at what's going on in the World Cup at the moment... Um, you can see something political every time England plays. They all take the knee, despite the fact that it's come out loud and clear that this organisation, Black Lives Matter, is a politically-based profit-making organisation. Backed
1: by an enormously huge... um, I don't know what you would call it politely, but just a a group that wants to stir everything
0: up. Exactly. Now, this is my point. Uh, I feel that uh, we've gone down a road now where people are half uh, accepting that uh, racism, which is one way, which is basically everything uh, anybody can ever say against a person, against his or her colour. I totally agree. You don't... You know, call people out because they're a different colour. I, I agree with that, but then we have racism against the Irish all the time. Uh, I, I doesn't even it doesn't even enter my mind most well, of the time. Well, it's
1: called racism now, isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me, it's called racism, but actually, it's I, I've certainly would have used racism as you've called it racism. But I, <clears throat> sorry, I'm so, so sorry, um, but it. It's, it's never been, I've never ever thought that it was racist, what I said, to, to, uh, to any of my Paddy friends. There you go, Paddy friends. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that some people would uh, d- disagree with me. Um, don't know, Mick Black, I don't know if you know Mick Black or Mary Black. Mary Black's a singer, she's now in America. Mick Black was at college with me, university with me. She's quite famous in America, yeah. Mary, um, folk singer, but she does. they do traditional Irish music. I mean, he would have called himself a paddy. Well you listen,
0: know, I tell it, jokes. It, I tell jokes about the Irish people because they're funny. I love the Irish humor. You know, I was brought up with it. I was educated in it. I'm not just going to suddenly change who I am um, just you know, because the TV I've decided that they I, lo-
1: I love I love potatoes. <laughs> I love potatoes. The praties, the
0: praties. The um, potatoes you
1: know <laughs> listen, you have to have the spuds. You have to have the three or four types of spud on the plate.
0: You do. <laughs> Well, I'm with you. Th- I'm with you absolutely. The same myself. If 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 I have a spud, I have to have it in about five or six different forms. I love well, the spuds.
1: Absolutely, you have to do that. You have to do that.
0: But I mean, th- this is this is funny stuff. It's fun. It's pleasant. Uh, I do understand that the racism that did exist in society, but it was never part of me or my friends or people that i mix with because basically you either like somebody because they're a nice person or you dislike them because they're not a nice person and it doesn't yeah,
1: absolutely you don't absolutely. give a fig racism what i didn't grow up with racism but i grew up with love thy neighbor do you remember that on the TV? exactly
0: in fact that's the way they started trying to change um, our society they had uh, love thy neighbor then they went into mixed blessings after that and it's then mixed they
1: blessings, yeah. I, mm. do rec- I don't recall it very well
0: and then they went from that they went into the fosters and made it totally black so we instead of integrating we got to where we were today which is basically you know um we have one set of people uh, as opposed to mixed blessing where we did have everybody mixing together and getting on and I think I think that is something that I think um, it's counterproductive what's going on in English football at the moment I think taking the knee is beginning to look a bit stupid and as somebody said and they showed you a picture of the British soldiers um, genuflecting, you know, at, at the time that it was uh, right to one of the fallen soldiers. You know, they're getting a mixed message all the time, and I think. Uh, For my way of looking at it, it's about time they stop this now. Uh, you only have to look at the teams, the composition of the teams, to see there is no real uh, systemic um, racism in certainly the top levels of football. You see far more black players than white players at the moment.
1: Well, I mean, I, 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 I just, I sort of, in my mind... And it's maybe it's wrong, and maybe it's because I don't watch football very much either. Um, I I don't really, I don't really have comment on it in a in a sense because I find it so abhorrent the whole thing. What, why? I mean, you know, this. what well, I forgot. Vincent probably correct me. What was the guy who sort of started all this in America who got shot? The, the guy that was out of his brains on
0: on yes. some. Yes. Uh, can't remember uh, his name. Uh, George. Oh, was it George Fox? No,
1: George... No, no. I, I can't recall. Um, and partly because I, I, it sounds disgusting, the man lost his life, but I, I don't believe for one minute that stuff that I read happened like it happened. The man was out of his... His, his body was full of drugs. Yeah. I don't condone that that's a fact that you should kill him because of that, but because his body was like that, I mean, the, the officer. Did the officer kill himself, or he got imprisoned? Did
0: he, he yes, he certainly he was sent to prison. But um, yeah,
1: I, I mean, it. it, it I, I can I'm, I'm speechless. Really, it's 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 all been taken out of hand and completely used by the activists, uh, and and it's and it will have ruined, absolutely ruined some people's lives.
0: Matt, you're never going to believe this we've come up to the hour let me just no. play let me oh, just yeah let me just play the jingle this, this is europe, europe calling with, with vince tracy, tracy and matt king. king and not a lot of people now that So, Matt, uh, because of basically our teaching background, one hour we won't go past it. Listen, we've got <laughs> stacks of ideas for the next one, and uh, I look forward immensely to chatting with you and looking at the serious issues that we discuss.
1: Well, it's been it's been so quick. I can't believe it. <laughs> Time has has gone by wonderfully, but you know, I hope that your listeners really do. Try and encompass what we've been saying today because it's 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 very very important.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Matt, look forward to next week.
1: Okay, take care, Vince. Thank Have you, Matt. A great week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.